the time is between 2005 and 2010. The place is the Samsung shipyard in South Korea. The situation is as follows. The ship is tied up at the dock for maintenance. The ship's activities, including required emergency drills, are ongoing. The crew have carried out their duties so many times with such efficiency that it seems like they're prepared for anything and nothing could go wrong. This is Legacy Survival Stories. Legacy Survival Stories. Welcome to Legacy Survival Stories. My name is Dan Latramoy and I'll be your host. Usually on this podcast, we cover some difficult subject matter. Uh, sometimes it's dark, sometimes it's harrowing, sometimes it's scary. Uh, but those aren't the only stories out there. Uh, so today we're going to bring you something a little more lighthearted. We have an incredible guest today. Uh, my friend Mark is a full ticketed master mariner and an offshore installation manager. Mark came up through his career initially as a commercial diver while he was building up his experience in his sea time towards his marine-related qualifications. After Mark had his marine qualifications, he segued into oil and gas where he became an OIM. That's the Offshore Installation Manager. Mark is one of those guys who's been so methodical, successful, and humble that he either inspires you to be a better person or to wonder where you went wrong with your life. Please welcome the incredibly knowledgeable, experienced, and interesting Mark Carew. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I appreciated it. Uh, I think you make me sound a little bit better than what I am, but I... Uh, Can't be done, Mark. Just a sailor. Can't be done. I'm a sailor um, through and through. All right. So let's uh, do a quick recap on your career. I've mentioned some things already, but you began early on as a commercial diver. Uh, so uh, any particular terribly interesting or scary stuff under there or something amusing you find under the water? Well, lots of stuff. Um, I started out when the ocean ranger sank and uh, I heard that the salvage was going to take place and I found that that was going to be fascinating. So that's what drove me to towards the diving thing. So how old would you have been? So for those at home, the ocean ranger went down in 1982 uh, and it did change the landscape of the oil and gas environment in, in Canada uh, and it had uh, implications across the world. Uh, but going back to Mark here, so you would have been... I think I was, uh, it was 82, so I was about uh, 19. I think I was in Memorial University going to school when it happened. Okay. Uh, I remember the day. It was Valentine's Day. Yeah, Valentine's Day, 1982. Yeah. yeah. What a terrible. Nasty, nasty day. Yeah. So uh, you got into commercial diving and uh, you were, That's that actually seems like a weird one. Uh, so the salvage of the Ocean Ranger was going to happen and you thought there, you were sort of thinking, hey, here's a, here's a, that's what I want to do. Me. That's what I want to do. So um, eventually after I, be, I went to school in Toronto at Seneca College and uh, CUTC to become a commercial diver. And then I came back and I was working and Newfoundland sometimes doesn't have a lot of work as many people know. So I had my car, my sleeping bag and my diving gear and I drove to Halifax on my way to Toronto and I ended up getting a, um, a sleeping in my car, believe it or not, for I'd say three or four weeks. Are you sure you weren't a musician or a DJ? No, you were no, I was knocking on the door every morning to get a, to get a job at this local diving company. And uh, I was sleeping in my car, and one day uh, the owner came and knocked on the door and said, do you know where Pier 27 is? And I didn't know where it was. I said, sure, and off <laughs> I went. And so I started working weekends and when no one else wanted to work, and eventually, yeah, I got a job. Uh, a funny story, Halifax Harbor used to be not so clean. 
now it's pretty clean. You, you, you don't say. Yeah, it was pretty nasty stuff. So um, I didn't have much. When I got my first apartment, I didn't have anything in it. So I was working on a Coast Guard ship uh, one day, dropped the wrench. I go down to the bottom of uh, the harbor, and I look all over the place, and there's plates um, like beautiful plates with Coast Guard emblems on it. And, so are we and talking l- like dinner plates? Dinner That's plates, okay. saucers, uh, silverware, like a jackpot of cash for me. <laughs> and uh, me being who I am, I decided I needed a sixth place because I was going to establish myself in the world. So I got six plates, six saucers, six bowls, six spoons, six of everything. Brought it home, washed it up, and used it for a long time. So fast forward a bunch of years, I meet my wife. My wife comes in, sits down one day, and I decide to make her supper. And she's commenting on... <laughs> this this exotic cl- yeah, color. Yeah, she's commenting on, where'd you get this type of... Halifax Harbor. <laughs> and she wouldn't eat her supper. <laughs> she wouldn't eat the supper. I said, oh, I've washed them a hundred times. No, wouldn't eat the supper. That's how bad it made her. I, I got to ask, what did you make? Lasagna. Okay. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it wasn't some weird creepy no, seafood no, dish. No, or... just lasagna. <laughs> but that was my... Uh, yeah, that was my interest uh, introduction to her. And then I was working uh, as a diver. We were out laying pipeline off Cohasset and Panook off uh, Sable. So for the folks at home, that would be one of the earliest, maybe the first? 1990, maybe. Yeah, so it, if, if not the first, very, very, very early in Nova Scotia's uh, oil and gas development. Uh, one of the first um, sort of projects that actually came to fruition and actually had any, you know, large-scale production going on out there. Yeah. So my ship uh, had a DP system and it came in with problems. Oh, you're using fancy words Lots now. Lots of words now. Okay, dynamic so, positioning. All yeah. right. So, Mark, tell us, what's dynamic positioning? So, dynamic positioning is a hovering of a ship. It's ability to keep a ship in one position using sensors and thrusters. As the uh, We use sensors in the form of GPS, uh, digital uh, differential GPS, and we have beacons on the seabed. And as the wind or the waves push us away from where we want to be, the computer knows and will automatically turn all the propellers and push us back. And as a result, we hover in one place for months at a time for diving operations, for drilling, for heavy lift operations. And uh, that's what I became. Eventually, I became a specialist in dynamic positioning. Okay, so that's actually a pretty nifty piece of technology. I mean, that means that if you're on a ship, not all not, not all ships have this. That's No, no. At, at one time, uh, I was one of the only people in Canada that had this fast forward when I was a marine officer and uh, I was for I was got a job on this on this uh, ship it was a heavy lift ship uh, for 18 years there was only uh, nationality of Italians they came to Canada they were forced to hire a couple of Canadians I was one of them and so you snuck in I got in there and my life was miserable because Really, they didn't want me there. No. It would, it would be like walking thing. into a union shop yeah. when you're not union. Yep. You yep. kind of yep. felt scabby. Yep, yep. yep. scabby is what, what they treated me. But eventually, I found out about DP, and they I started looking at it, and this was early DP, and then I found out all the books were in written in English. So I used to take them to my cabin, and I'd work 12 hours and sleep four or five hours, and then I'd study DP, and then... Um, they kind of found out I was taking the books from the bridge and they didn't want me to know. So I wasn't allowed to take the books anymore. I had to come up to the bridge and read them in the chart room. And, 
But I eventually got enough money together and sent myself over. You had to go all the way to Kongsberg at one time, right over to Norway where the system was invented. Now it's offered everywhere in the world. I got I got a segue back here to the introduction where I said uh, you make a person more inspired to do better or wonder where they went wrong with your life. And there's a perfect example of Mark working 12 hours a day, yeah. sleeping a couple of hours, and then studying for five, six hours of yeah. his downtime. Yeah. Uh, tip of well, the cap to you, Mark. Well, when I made the change from diving to marine officer i thought i'd be a shoe in because i had worked offshore and i had all kinds of experience but no one wanted to hire me i came out with a third mate's license and it just happened to be a late 80s uh, no when was that when did i come out uh 90s 90 sometime 93 I'm, I'm thinking it was a downturn in the oil industry and there wasn't a lot of jobs and I couldn't get a job. It was really difficult. So when I did get a job and I found out the DP was a ticket to uh, Hollywood wages, I said, that's where I want to be. So singular focus and you sorted it out and lo and behold. There I go. Achieved excellent success. I, on yeah, that. I did. Yeah. So Mark works on a, uh, with an Italian crew, uh, something large vessel that's got dynamic positioning. Uh, you're at the leading edge of that uh, as it becomes a sort of a, a, I mean, it's worldwide now, as you mentioned, but at the time, yeah. uh, hardly hardly anything had that. Uh, so uh, there's a excellent examples of uh, Mark's focus and his ability to, to get things done and, uh, and, and persevere. Yeah. And uh, tell me tell me more. Well, what, uh, what else interests you out there? Yeah, well... What is interesting me at the latter part of my career is human behavior in um, emergency situations and how people act before an emergency, during and after an emergency. And I'm fascinated by um, how people act. And have you ever seen the video Bradford Stadium Fire? Oh, yes, yeah. And, yes. That's, and that's a great uh, microcosm of exactly what I'm talking about. So, so I'll just segue real quick yeah. right here for those that are not familiar. That would have been early 80s again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was a, uh, a, 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 what we would call a soccer match, but over there they would call a football match at a uh, medium-sized uh, stadium uh, in the probably five to $6,000 yeah. seat range. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they had a significant fire uh, this video is available for anybody on youtube if you want to go look it up but it's it's uh, intense and not for the faint of heart um with that i'll pass back to mark then. yeah so what's interesting about the video is human behavior so a fire catches and nobody moves there's i don't know how many people but say thousands of people sitting in their chairs fire not too far from them and they don't get up and leave for the exits like you should um, so time goes on, time goes on. Eventually you see people panicking, jumping over the rails and some of them on fire. And then another thing happens. The emergency people like the police, they're, they're trained and they're expected and to go into the emergency area and try to rescue people. So and you we, see, and we do take it for granted, don't yeah, we, yeah. that, uh, somebody in the uniform shows up that there's, right. yeah. So, so they go in there and they start grabbing people and dragging them out. And meanwhile, there's sort of like a hooligan type of uh, atmosphere in the back where people are celebrating, literally jumping up and down, saying hooray that this football stadium is burning down. And literally people right there, and you can see this on the video, people are on fire. And that is a behavior that I am curious about. What turns people into boneheads when they an emergency happens? So then the police just go and they're grabbing the people and they're dragging them out. Then all of a sudden civilians go in there. So there is a story, and I think you may have even told me this at one time, that out of 100% of people in an emergency, 15% uh, stand up and uh, lead. 
70% of the people are dazed and confused, don't know what to do. And if they see leadership, they will follow. And unfortunately, there's 15% at the end who turn into hooligans, idiots. There have been stories about people going around stealing things from people's cabins as a ship is sinking. Yeah, all kinds of horrible yeah, stories. Yeah. For for reference, uh, by the way, credit where credit is due, uh, although I would love to take credit for those stats, uh, that's actually Professor John Leach uh, oh, from, yeah, from over, right. yeah. I believe he's uh, I believe he's uh, from the UK uh, and did, uh, he was the one that came up with those studies uh, and those percentages. But, but yeah, super interesting how yeah, people are. Yeah, so the, if I was to, I guess you're here to hear my stories and stories are something that you can't just flip off the top of your head. You have so many of them, and sometimes something needs to rejog or something like that. So the story I w was going to tell you today, I'm on a brand new drill ship in in Korea, South Korea, in a shipyard called Samsung. Okay, so this is in the yard. It, no, um, sort of in the yard. So we took delivery of the vessel, and I had to sail it across the harbor to another sort of a shipyard just to do some finishing touches on. So from one shipyard just across the harbor to the other? Yep. And for anybody who hasn't been there, I've actually been, I have been all over the world, mm. but I have been to um, the, not the Samsung yard, but one of the other big yards in Korea. And yeah. it's... Hyundai or Daewoo. Oh or my goodness. Yeah. It was the Daewoo yard. Yeah. Like 60,000 people oh. a day on these little scooters trying to get in. It, you take your life in your hands. You're trying to get 60 people funneling into a op for open uh, front gate of a shipyard. Yeah. It and, is, it uh, is amazing. Yeah. I mean, to, to, for a sense of scale for everybody at home, the, the, the shipyard there, if you could imagine the entirety of Halifax Harbor, all of it, all of the waterfront entirely being one big shipyard, and they have three or four of them yep, over there. Yep, like, it's yep. mind-blowing. Cranes that are bigger than the biggest building in Halifax. Yeah. Like, just enormous. So, I had just taken possession of the ship. I tied it up in another shipyard, and um, in the, okay, in the international community, you're supposed to have a a drill, a boat and fire drill on a ship. How often? Uh, oh, geez. I'm under the microscope now. Come on. O oil and gas is typically a weekly. Yeah, so you, illegally it's monthly. So you're supposed to do it monthly. But if you're on a passenger ship or if you're in a, you can have a higher level of safety. So my company, we would do it weekly. So in the oil and gas, weekly. So what happens is that we drill for several reasons. One is to train the people allow them to know what they're supposed to do in the event of an emergency and test out the equipment to make sure it's functional. And unfortunately, there's um, people get into a rhythm. And here was the rhythm. It was a brand new ship. It was new people, not necessarily new, but they came from other ships. So, so not, not, not new to the industry, yep. but new to the vessel. Right. So okay. we had had maybe four or five drills, weekly drills before. And people, and I announced them. Drill Sunday. Noon. So, by the way, just to back up a little bit, what what's your position on this? Are you are you the the master of the vessel? I think I was master then, or I was probably chief mate. Might have been uh, unseen commander. I See, don't. There's another example of how successful Mark has been. He's been master on so many vessels he can't entirely yeah. remember which yeah. ones are which. <laughs> so so we have a fire. Okay, back up a little bit. So every week we do the same thing. Now you're supposed to wear PPE, which is uh, hard hat, coveralls, and work boots. Anytime you're out on the on the deck, and we hammer that to them, hammer, hammer, hammer. Glasses, you could lose your job if you don't have it. So we have these drills, and people know the drills Sunday at noon. So about Sunday at eleven, they go down in the change room, they put on the coveralls and their boots, and they hang around, waiting for the alarm to go off, knowing that okay, I'm going to have to do this drill thing. Anyway, fast forward, a real event happens. 
fire in the forward thruster room. Real, real fire. So now you're not allowed to say this is not a drill because that's uh, it's not proper to say that. So basically, um, it, but it was real. And I said, we're alongside. People were to muster off the ship onto the quayside. So is that part of your announcement? So yeah. the, the, the alarm bells are dinging or yeah. the, the sirens going or whatever, and you're coming over the PA system saying, attention, everybody, we have a fire in forward thruster room. Everybody, please stop what you're doing and muster on the shore? Sure. Okay. Except the emergency teams had to do their thing. So people weren't mustering. Where is everyone? What the hell is happening? So are you still in the control room or are you on the I'm shore? I'm in the control room and I'm saying, well, why, you know, because the numbers need to come in. You usually have about three to five minutes to get everybody's position. So we call it a full muster where you know where everyone is. So I heard that everyone was down in the change room. So I run down the change room and here everyone is putting on their boiler suit or coveralls and their work boots all, and their all, hard hat. All the PPE that they're supposed to wear exactly. all the time. Yeah. So what we had drilled into them was... Wear your hard hats, wear your boots, wear this, wear, wear this. And then what we did is we had routine weekly drills where people knew about it and they would go down and put on their gear. And then in a real emergency, instead of doing what they should have done, which is exit the ship, they go down and put on their hard hat and their boots and made this big delay because everyone in the ship went to the change room at the same time. So in a weird roundabout way, by sort of regularly scheduling yeah. the drills, yeah. You had almost inadvertently trained them exactly. to, rather than like do what the alarm says, they were they were just in the habit exactly. now of going to get their gear on yeah. in, a, in a sauntering, complacent manner. And wow. I was I was I was fascinated by this. I said, "What just happened?" You know, it was very obvious. This is real. There is smoke. Everyone knew, and everyone goes to the change room. So it's. I took the responsibility. I say it's because that's what we train them to do. Because what you train is what you're going to do. And we're like uh, cattle or cows, but eventually you do it so many times you get, they call it muscle memory, and you do exactly what the drills tell you to do. So that was a big flaw. It's, looking back at it, it's somewhat funny. It wasn't funny at the time. It was a real fire. We had to fight the fire down in the bow thruster room. It was my ship. We had taken it from the shipyard. But looking back at it now, I'm fascinated by that. And we were trying to do everything by the book, which is enforce safety, um, enforce uh, safety values, and train the fire teams. And, and everything that I didn't want to happen happened at that time. So I, that's that, one of... That's I'm, actually amazing. Mm, that, that's remarkable. Because mm. we do talk uh, in the industry, it often comes up about, you know, take the drill seriously mm. and don't be complacent about it. And it's it's interesting to hear that somebody in charge of a ship who was trying very hard to do what was required and to do the right thing, yeah. still, more or less by accident, ended up grooming people to do something you didn't want them to do. That is so interesting. So I shut the ship down after we get the fire out and we have a... Stand down. By the way, how, how, how severe was the fire? Um, it was electrical wiring down in the high voltage, so it was uh, 11 kVA, so 11,000 volts. Um, there was a fair bit of damage, but we used the fixed firefighting system to put the fire out, and uh, no one was hurt. But it caused a lot of smoke, and we were, it caused us to stay an extra month, I think. In so the, the fixed firefighting system on that would that be a big uh, gas cylinders or something? Yeah, yeah. yeah. CO2 or hal uh, halotron or FM200. Some I don't remember which one we had. Okay, but just curious. Whatever we had at the time. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, mm -hmm. so sorry, you were saying that you uh, called yeah, everybody so back in. Yeah, so safety stand down. That's what you're supposed to do when something like this happens, and everyone comes in, everyone is there, and you talk about what happened. And as I was trying to explain to them 
or ask the question, why did everyone go to the change room to put on your stuff? And r literally, they were looking back at me as if I had two heads. What do you mean? That's what we're supposed to do. That's what you tell us. That's what everyone tells us to do, the safety officer. If we go out on that deck without PPE on, we're fired. So I then realized it wasn't their fault. It was my fault. That's where the mistake came. So then I modified. Um, I modified how I do things. But it was an eye-opening experience, you know. And so then we train people. And when they do what we train them to do, and you're surprised at, at their actions, you say, what the heck happened? So, <laughs> yeah, so human behavior in an emergency, I find interesting. And, uh, so very, very interesting. One of the anecdotes, yeah. So to bring this story back to uh, something resembling a conclusion, if at that day, that time, that place, what would you do different? So um, if it was a real event, um, and we were alongside, you would bypass the coveralls and the work boots and all of the stuff, and you would just exit uh, to get out because we just want everyone off the dock. Everybody off, off, off and accounted for. Yeah. yeah. And so, but we never ever said that, you know, you just, you just warn people that you're not allowed to exit the accommodation without that stuff on. Which, but, which is fair enough yeah, because yeah. people are pretty bad for, yeah. for, for wearing the PPE that yeah. they're supposed to. So they did what they were supposed to do. So, but I was baffled by it. <laughs> Come on, human nature. What? If I was in my pajamas, I would have ran off the off the side of the ship. I wouldn't have been going down to the coveralls thing. Oh wow, that's that's an amazing story. Uh, that's so interesting. And uh, uh, as you note, uh, watching the emergency behavior um, that that people have uh, mm. when something strange happens, that's just absolutely remarkable. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Thanks so much for uh, joining us on the show today, Mark. I enjoyed it. It's great, and uh, good luck with this. I. I'm looking forward to listening to the different podcasts you produce. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and almost anywhere you can find podcasts. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and help us move up the charts with a five-star rating. We like comments and reviews, so we'd love to hear from you. If you've got an interesting story or think you know someone who'd make a great guest on the show, please reach out to us at LegacySurvivalStories, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also find us at LegacySurvivalStories.Buzzsprout.com. Legacy Survival Stories.